So we've been here together now for two days, pretty much, engaged in this practice of being present, of being awake. And to a significant degree, to a large degree, we've been encouraged and encouraging ourselves to pay attention to the body, to connect with this experience that we call body. And I'd like to speak about that territory of meditative reflection and practice that we call body. In some ways, the, the foundation practice that we use to establish ourselves in being here is just the noticing that we have a body, that we're here, that there's this physical structure and form, and that the nature of it, or one of the particular qualities of the body that's rather fortunate, that's rather beneficial, is that it's, it's right here. This body is happening right here. And it's happening right now. And any time and every time we connect with it, we turn towards it, the expression of bodily life that is revealed offers us an opportunity to connect with that sense of immediacy. Giving attention to the body, giving attention to our experience means actually grounding ourselves in something that's immediate, that's present, that is alive. And this experience, this field, this framework of attention to the body forms the first foundation of mindfulness, the first framework that the Buddha encouraged us as practitioners to pay attention to. And the second foundation and this uh, teaching of the four foundations is paying attention to the qualities or the, the aspect of experience in which we find it pleasurable or pleasant, unpleasant or uncomfortable, or we find it to be neither one nor the other of those two. And we'll speak more about this as part of what we're giving attention to in our practice. The third foundation, the third field or framework is noticing the condition and the state of our mind and our heart becoming familiar with, becoming aware of what's going on in this field of receptivity and responsiveness that we call heart and mind. And the fourth realm of attention or field of attention we're invited to, to attend to is the, the realm of uh, the content of our experience in the mind, the realm of thoughts and the territory of what arises in the mental activity. And we'll speak more about these things as we go through the week. Initially, as a way of supporting ourselves of coming out of the kind of cerebral, intellectual, kind of conceptual way that we often approach life, we're invited to come to the body, come into this experience of body. And we see, perhaps, as we begin that, that our tendency at First is to, to look through concepts, to look through ideas, to, to talk about or to relate to body in terms of sort of maybe the way we would describe it in terms of appearance or shape or dimension or such things. These ideas that we have about our body. And yet as we come close we see the body as an experience, as something that's directly available, isn't any of those things. It doesn't have a colour or a shape particularly or a weight, or an appearance. What it looks like to us when we look in the mirror is not body. That's an image, that's an idea that we form, that's a picture in the mind. Body is what we notice from the inside when we pay attention to it. We notice it as vibration, as texture, as warmth, as coolness, as pressure, as fluidity, or stillness, as warmth and coolness. We notice it as vibration, Rippling and flowing, flickering, growing, moving, doing so many things. This is the experience of the body that we're invited to pay attention to. And we're using a very particular field within the body of what it's like to be sitting, or to be standing, or to be walking. What it's like to pay attention to the breath. This that we call breath, that is in fact a, a remarkable and complex process taking place that travels the journey of our life, that marks the range of that journey. 
this body. And when we start to come close to it at that level, not so much the conceiving, the thinking about it, but actually feeling it, touching into it, we can't help but come into contact with the fundamental reflection or the fundamental recognition of this body's, what it has to teach us, what it has to show us. This body that is subject to birth, to ageing, to sickness and to death. It's like that for all bodies. This body, those bodies, these bodies, all bodies are subject to this. And it's something that the Buddha invited us just to reflect on, to take take account of the significance of what this means. And it's not something we necessarily always feel that enthusiastic about. It's like, I came here to feel peaceful and calm. I don't want to think about something unpleasant like, you know, ageing and sickness and all of that. And anyway, why... Why has sickness come after ageing? Did you ever have that thought, you know, birth, ageing, sickness, death? I used to always wonder, well, why did the Buddha put it in that order? Because I got sick long before I felt like I was ageing. I was sick when I was a kid. I wasn't ageing then. I was barely growing up. And yet, interestingly, I, heard, I read recently an alternate translation for that term, um, which I, I rather found quite poignant and powerful. And there's this... Um, this, this teacher who's a, a, a German monk, um, or, or was, I don't think he's alive anymore, um, a Buddhist monk from Germany originally, but living in Sri Lanka, he described the, um, this, this, these characteristics or these sort of features of what the body is subject to, birth, ageing, not sickness, he said birth, ageing, decay and death. I think decay, hmm, that sounds even less attractive than sickness. You see now why it's in that order when you have that word. You're oh, that's the kind of sickness that doesn't get better. Yeah? You know, I got the flu when I was a kid. I was pretty sick. But then I got better and I was fine. No harm done. But there are those things, and as the years roll on, we start to notice them, that actually don't get better. And... This is something that at a very fundamental level, for, for most of us, I think even when we've practiced with this reflection, this contemplation in our lives, it's hard for us to fully take it on, what it means. We tend to struggle with this. We tend to struggle with the fact that this body is subject to ageing, to decay, and ultimately to death. It's not something we find easy and, you know, it's interesting with the skeleton in the walking room, I think I mentioned it yesterday. Well, maybe it was this morning, I can't remember. But anyway, mentioning you know, the, the skeleton, it's interesting how much controversy there was when we wanted to put that skeleton in there. It was offered um, as a donation to Guy House from a medical student who was connected here. And uh, in Asia, in many monasteries, you find lots of skeletons. It's kind of a pretty common thing. Um, but the idea, oh, no, we can't have that. That'll make people, ooh, you know, ooh. You know, people won't want to come. We'll discourage them from doing meditation if they don't want to be in a room with a skeleton. It's interesting, isn't it, if we contemplate it. Actually, there's probably about 60 skeletons in this room right now. They're just wrapped up in some other stuff, aren't they? There's some clothes and some flesh, but there's actually lots of skeletons in here. And yet being confronted with or contemplating the fact that, oh, yeah, this, this, this body goes in a certain direction. What that does, it brings us into contact with a very fundamental and underlying sort of unease, or we could even say fear, with the fact that we're here, but not forever. And part of what the body reveals to us and what being in contact with the, our body brings us into contact with is the fact that this body is not forever. This life is not forever. And this is something just to reflect on, to contemplate. Because what we see is that the arising in our practice, in our lives, of, of fear in so many different ways and situations comes down to this. The preservation and the protection, the survival of the body. is something deeply wired into us, into our very selves, just trying to exist, trying to stay here for as long as possible in the face of the fact that actually that's ultimately going to be an unsuccessful endeavour. We're not going to get to stay here forever. We probably wouldn't even actually want to if we could, to be honest. But that sense of, oh, our body is so caught up in this process. 
And it's actually from not coming from the body. It's actually from the mind that we, we resist and we struggle with the idea. We don't conceive it. We don't even think it. But at some level there's this urge to stay alive biologically that's expressed through the body but that actually comes back to the, the quality and the condition of the consciousness that's inhabiting the body. And so this, this urge to survive, to protect, is something, something very powerful. And part of what happens when we make contact with our experience, when we start to live more closely with what's actually happening moment to moment, is we feel the impact and the effect of the way in which so much of the time we're contracting, we're tightening, we're holding, in a way to try and protect ourselves. And a very interesting and curious and not particularly effective mechanism for trying to protect ourselves. We tighten, we contract. And we can notice it perhaps in moments when something arises that's a little scary or uncomfortable. Some sensation in the body that we're not easy, not, not easily able to be with. The tendency is to tighten. And to see that underneath that is what's actually going on is we're trying to take care of ourselves. Because we care about the well-being of this body and this life. We're trying to take care of ourselves, but when it plays out in the form of that contraction, that tightening, it doesn't actually serve us. It doesn't actually lead to well-being. So when we see that there's that caring underneath the mechanism of contraction, of tightening, that attempt to take care of something that's, that's actually precious, something that's actually beautiful. It's not wrong that we wish to care for our body or to preserve our body and to protect our body. But to not be coming from a place or an idea that somehow imagines that it's possible to ultimately sustain and maintain the existence of the body. That its natural journey is something in which it changes and ultimately ceases to be. But what happens for us is we get caught up in the fear, in relationship to discomfort, in relationship to pain arising in the body, and of course very much arising in the heart, in the emotional life, and the process is quite parallel. But it's good and useful to look at it initially in terms of the body. What happens with that? How we, how we kind, of, kind of go into a battle, get into a battle with our experience. And that doesn't serve us. If we find ourselves struggling with what's going on, resisting it, pushing it away, fighting with it. As a story I like to read uh, that uh, describes the encounter of a or, the, or a conversation that's taking place between a, um, a US naval ship and the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland and it took place quite a few years ago but uh, I was sent this by a friend and it's presented as if this was actually the conversation that took place on um, 10th of October 1995 so quite a while ago now but anyway the American ship sends this message um, Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians respond. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. You can see what's happening here. The Ameri Americans respond. This is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, again, divert your course. The Canadians, no. I say again, you divert your course. And the next bit's in capital letters, so it's kind of like shouting in that particular form of communication. The American ship responds, This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians respond, this is a lighthouse. <laughs> Your call. <laughs> the story 
of course, rather sweetly amusing, and we can enjoy the kind of or the imagined uh, thought or feeling of the, the captain of the ship when he realizes he's ordering a, a lighthouse to get out of his way. But it's also kind of amusing because perhaps we recognize something of ourselves in it. The way in which we kind of put this pressure on life, this pressure on ourselves, this pressure on our body to be other than as it is. To somehow get out of the way because it doesn't quite or adjust and accommodate itself to what we and how we would like things to be. Now the reality of the situation and the story there, and I'm not sure it did actually take place exactly like that, although that's how it's presented. The reality is that the lighthouse is not going to move. The ship is the only thing with the option. And in terms of our lives, likewise, life is not going to change the way it is because we don't like it or because we feel threatened or impacted by it. It's we who have the capacity to reorient ourselves. And that reorientation is what transforms our life. So seeing how when we encounter something difficult or challenging, often fear arises or the wish to push something away, to fight something. And what happens is we get caught up in the story of what's going to happen if I can't deal with this, if I can't fix this. My knee starts hurting. And within moments, you know, we've imagined the scenario whereby not only does it hurt, but actually it continues to hurt. And it hurts all sitting, or perhaps all day. And then maybe we, you know, have this idea of a, an ambulance pulling up a guy house and taking us off to the hospital and, you know, amputated above the knee. The mind moves that quickly into the feared consequence. And so I can't sit with this discomfort in my knee because actually I'm trying to deal with something that's beyond dealing with because it hasn't actually happened. And actually coming back and seeing, oh, what's happening here? Oh, is it needed that I make a change to my posture? Maybe so. That's okay. We're allowed to do that. But first of all, noticing the impact in the situation of the fear and the contraction and the way in which we project the outcome into the future and the sense of, I can't handle this experience. Now, the same happens when we feel difficult experience arising in our emotional life, but just using this, this image. It's like we can't handle the pain in our knee that it's going to feel like when it keeps doing this all day. Because that hasn't happened. It isn't happening. And we can't, by definition, we can't handle something or deal with something that's not here. The attempt to do so takes us away from where we are into the construction and the story in the mind. And we become lost and entangled in that. And that becomes deeply painful. Becoming lost in this. Mark Twain once said, Almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. But it's like the anticipation of how bad it will be becomes actually really painful and difficult for us. And interestingly, if we're here and the experience that's difficult is here, then actually by definition we can handle it because we already are. Because it's here and we're here. Now, we of course may have had the experience in the past, and particularly when we're young, but not only so, of being overwhelmed by difficult experiences that were more than we could handle. And we carry the impression and the impact of that in us, in our heart, in our mind, in our body, in different ways. And it's really important to be respectful and sensitive to the vulnerabilities we may have in that regard. To not, what I'm not saying here that therefore we should somehow push through all experiences. Sometimes the right, the skillful, the wise and compassionate thing to do is to say, actually, that's enough. I can back off in the context of some pain in the knee. I can explore a little and then maybe, yeah, I'll straighten my leg out or I'll change the posture to take the pressure off. Not as a rejection of or out of fear of the experience, but just because I'm exploring to see what's, hap what's useful, to see what's helpful here. And, and likewise with emotional experiences when they arise, sometimes it's skillful and useful just to back off. Just to say, okay, I don't need to step right into the center of this. Sometimes it's much more helpful, much more skillful to just notice the edges of it, to feel what it's like 
from a, a sort of a, a place in which we're not on top of, or we're not trying to fix what's going on or figure it out even, but just acknowledge it and maybe settle back more into the broader frame of the body or the sense of where the body is in contact with the earth. It's so useful. This body, as I was, I was speaking with someone today, this body, in some ways, it's earth sitting on earth. This, it comes from the earth and it rests on the earth and eventually it goes back to the earth. And there's nothing in it that didn't come out of something that grew out of the earth. It's all that. And something about just allowing ourselves to rest here. To not be pulled and drawn so quickly, so fast into the future. Because it's in the future that we lose the ground, we lose the support that's actually in the, not in the future, but in the belief, in the idea that we're somehow engaging with a future that hasn't happened yet. And thereby lose contact with our capacity to engage with the present, the immediate experience, which is happening and which we can meet, which we can find ways to skillfully handle. So part of what happens with fear is that we see is that it takes us towards something that hasn't yet happened. That's a projection of our memories and our stories and experience of difficult things from the past that we imagine it will be like that and probably worse. That's the only basis we have for imagining anything is our past experience. So we kind of project it forward. And yet the experience is happening right here. It's always happening right here. If we can start to notice, to remember that and come back, we will start to discover an immense resource, an immense support for meeting our experience. When we were young, we didn't have the capacity we have now as adults. We didn't have the capacity to skillfully develop and mature this, this incredible heart, mind, and its, its potential for holding, for receiving, for allowing our experience to unfold and ultimately to find what is needed in any moment of experience, to enable things to move and to ultimately express their natural freedom. Mostly, things that we become entangled with seem to be stuck or fixed because at some level we're holding on to them. Either with some desire for them to become something different or some unwillingness to let ourselves be touched by them. And that's the framework in which we contract and hold on to what goes on. And so, of course, it's a little bit disappointing when we come on a meditation retreat. You now, we've heard about meditation retreats, or we've done them before, and we kind of have this idea, meditation, calm, peaceful. You know, they, they use images of people meditating to sell mortgages these days. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it. So, you know, peace of mind with our new mortgage, someone in meditation. It's like, oh, well, well that's from a mortgage. You know, that's a bank advertising meditation. Gosh, so if I'm doing a proper meditation retreat, surely I should be feeling calm and peaceful and full of sort of ease and, you know, all of that. And sometimes that's not what we're experiencing. That doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. We're not trying to get somehow to a place or manufacture some calm, clear, peaceful experience that we can sort of enjoy for a while and then remember when we've gone back home and think, mm, that was nice, I had that nice experience on a retreat. That's not what this is about. Although, of course, there's nothing wrong with such experiences. In fact, they can be quite useful, quite helpful. But more fundamentally, we're turning towards the truth. We're expressing something that's profound and noble, the willingness of a human being to turn towards what is true. Seeing that so much of our culture and so much of our habitual patterns involve turning away from it, just not really wanting to see what's here. When we turn towards what's here, it's inevitable for us that we will at times not always, but at times encounter things that aren't easy for us. But if we have the courage to do so from a place of care and kindness, it's remarkable what is possible for us to, to be touched by, to learn to handle. There's a poem by Wendell Berry. He speaks of this process. He says, I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me 
like circles on water. My tasks lie in their place where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. Then what I fear in it leaves it. And the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. Something for me very beautiful in this, in this, 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 this sense of just sitting and being willing to meet what comes. When we see that we can actually do that, when we start to learn that slowly and develop the courage and the trust to do that, we see that in that meeting with that which is difficult, something is transformed. What we fear in it leaves it. Because we see that the presence of this experience, the contact with this experience, actually does not annihilate or overwhelm this possibility for being present, awake and connected. We survive the meeting in simple terms. And as we see that, as we start to recognize, oh, that's what's happening. Actually, I am okay here with this. Doesn't mean we like it, doesn't mean it isn't uncomfortable or really difficult at times. But actually, oh, this is okay. The fear in it leaves me. And it sings. I hear its song. We come into relationship with it. There's actually a communication that takes place in which we start to receive and understand what it is we need to learn here. This willingness to learn from our experience. This is actually what gives so much potency to the practice. It's not about controlling and manipulating it. The, this practice isn't about controlling and manipulating our experience to get it to feel more comfortable more of the time. That Transformation can actually come out of the practice, but not by doing it from that intention or that motivation. It actually comes from the willingness, the courage and the nobility that is expressed in the human heart and the human spirit by saying, okay, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to see what comes. And there might be times where I need to take a step backwards or move away, but I'm basically going to stay facing what's here. So even if we back off from something, and we sometimes need to, we do so staying in relationship to it, rather than trying to somehow turn away from it or close the experience down. What happens when we start to find the ground of our body the body as a place to ground our experience. To see that even when things are not easy for us, and there might be places that feel under pressure, there are also parts of our body that may feel okay right now. And it's useful to notice that. So maybe there's some emotion moving in the chest or the belly, sure. Or there's some distress or pain in the knee or the shoulder or the back, sure. We experience these difficult things. But we might also notice that actually, oh, my elbow feels okay right now. Or my left ear just feels really just kind of neutral. There's nothing much going on here. And, and I'm not saying that to be silly. It's more like, oh, yes, there is that which is challenging. But the tendency is to focus on it to the exclusion of everything else. So we're not saying deny it, pretend it's not there, but acknowledge also what else is here. Just the way the body rests on the earth. Just coming back to that reference, and we say regularly in the sitting, feel your body resting on the earth. Just start with that, or standing, feet on the ground. It's not just because it's a good idea, it's because there's something that tells us, it's speaking to us, not through our head, not through the idea of feet, ground, or bottom, seat. Those are just ideas. But what is it when I feel that? There's something firm there, there's something solid there, there's something supportive there. And that I can train my attention to choose to pick that experience up and notice, oh, it gives some reassurance, it gives some confidence. Oh, it's okay. Hush, I might be feeling fear, but I'm not in danger. Ah, big discovery. I might be experiencing fear, but I'm not in danger. And yet I need to pay attention just to check and see, is there anything dangerous here? 
because that function, the function of that, that whole movement of, um, of fear, anxiety, what it's trying to do in its skillful expression is get us to pay attention to what's happening right here. When we get lost in the story about what's going to happen in the future, that effect or that, 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 that process is undermined. But in fact, there's a natural alertness that arises when we're aware that, oh yeah, there's some vulnerability here. I don't know if any of you noticed, but I, I, I certainly saw some of you uh, having um, maybe followed my suggestion or maybe come to it yourself to do your walking meditation with bare feet sometimes. And it's really interesting. What I notice not only is the fact of the sensitivity of my feet very apparent to me when I'm walking um, without shoes on, some of you may have noticed this, but also the fact is that I could put my foot on something sharp. Or maybe there's still the occasional bee out there. And I really don't want to stand on the bee, both for the welfare of the bee, but also for, for my own welfare. And somehow that vulnerability makes it much more obvious that I should really pay attention to where I'm putting my feet. You know, but I don't have to think about it so much. I was uh, teaching in Sweden um, this, earlier this year in spring, and someone reported that there was an adder down by the lake, a snake. And it's a poisonous snake, but it's a snake, and they're fascinating to me. In New Zealand, where I come from, we don't have any snakes. And so I walked down there. But as I was walking down, looking to see, where is the snake? Where is the snake? It's down, I heard it was down by the edge of the lake near the big rock. I was also part of me thinking, you're going to feel really silly if you stand on the snake and it bites you. You know, you're going deliberately into a place where there's danger. But what I also noticed was, wow, I don't have to think, hmm, it'd be a good idea to be mindful. You know, I could probably benefit from paying attention to where I'm putting my feet. That's good practice. That thought did not arise because, oh, there's some vulnerability. Then we naturally pay attention. So with that, to pay attention to the body. Pay attention to what's happening so we can check out and see, do I need to make an adjustment? Do I need to shift the direction of my attention? Sure, that's an option. But what happens, more habitually perhaps, what we're more often familiar with, I think, in our less conscious modes in life, is that we, we're not that comfortable with inhabiting our body that much. It's not something that's easy for us much, unless we've really cultivated this. Because at some level... We recognize or we're aware of, we don't think about it necessarily, but we're aware of the body's not in our control. The experience that arises in this body isn't determined by me. And the experience that arises in your body isn't determined or controlled by you. We can adjust it and influence it a bit. Yeah, sometimes, you know, have a shower or something nice to eat or lie down, something that we feel enjoyable. Sure, many things we can do, but a lot of it, it's not in our control. This body is of the nature of things. And things, all things, not just this body, all things, they're not subject to our control. We can't make them be or have them as we wish them to be. This body can experience exquisite pleasure. Sweet, sweet delight. And it can experience incredible pain. Real distress. And we don't get to choose the mixture. We don't get to choose that. Of course, we care about that. But there's a way in which, at a certain level, it seems to me that we don't, from the point of view of our mental functioning, our thinking, and the sense of me that operates from that perspective of trying to make things happen in a certain way so as to keep it comfortable and safe and predictable. It really, from that place, we don't really trust the body because we can't control it. And so the tendency is to live in our head. The attempt to control bodily experience fails. That's basically what happens. Or it fails enough of the time for us to be pretty unwilling to live more closely to our body. And one of the movements that's taking place in our culture and our society is that living 
distant from one's body is becoming amplified because we're not actually even living in our head anymore. We're actually living in devices that replicate the activities of our head and their stories and their entertainment and their information and their communication. It's like we're getting further away. We're getting further away. Now, wasn't, there's that line from um, James Joyce, you know, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. To come into our body, what we notice as we do this, and we're invited to do it again and again, is when the body is in the grip of fear, or equally in the grip of craving, of desire. And these are really expressions of the same pattern of attempting to control experience. One in the grabbing for, grasping hold of, one in the pushing away, resisting. What we will notice if we allow ourselves to feel what's happening is that it's actually really painful. That the very movement of that reactivity is something that's hard for us to bear. It's hard to experience. It's really uncomfortable. And what we're really looking for often when we're looking to get the thing that I want, it's not the thing that does it for us. It's that when we get it, in that moment, the desire drops away and we relax. And that feels really good. We've probably had that experience. We get the thing we want. It finally happens. Finally, oh, you know, my mind has gone quiet. Oh, I so wanted that. Oh, a moment of quiet. We relax. We feel good. And it's actually the absence of the desire in the body that feels good. And in the mind too. Likewise with fear. And so we have this often association with inhabiting our body as somewhere that we don't really... No, if we want to, that much. We might think it's a good idea. We hear the instruction. It sounds like we're supposed to. But that's different than really getting it in the core of our being. That Oh, yeah, there's something important here. Because when we're not in the grip of fear, when we're not caught up in desire, when we come into our body in this condition, what we actually find is something that's actually very sweet, that can be very lovely to inhabit. It's actually a lot of what's at the, at the heart of the experiences that we can sometimes encounter in meditation when we feel very present, collected, focused. We talk about samatha, calm or samadhi, a gatheredness, a unification of mind. And the mind unifies in the body. It comes together in the body. When the mind and the body are unified, actually we experience some real depth of ease and well-being. And this is something both pleasurable and inviting and even compelling and possibly even uh, addictive, which isn't so helpful. But nonetheless useful and beneficial if we understand how to skillfully work with the body. So allowing ourselves to come into contact with body, come back into body again and again. This has so much to offer. It's really worth it to put in the time and the effort, just as we're doing here. And to see, we need to learn to listen to this body. It has its wisdom, it has its dharma to offer us. With the experience of pain, and pain is something we experience in the body. We tend not to want it, we tend to want to get rid of it. But if we bring kind attention, if we learn to relax into to soften around, we can start to see that actually it has something important to offer us. We tend to think of it as all bad, you know. Who wouldn't, if they were given the choice right now, if I said, I've got the magic, the magic mantra or the magic meditation practice and all pain in your body will go away forever from now. Who wouldn't sign up for it? I know, I'd be very, very tempted. It would be like, wow, you can, we can do that? Imagine if there was such a thing. There isn't. Sorry, I'm not, I don't want to lead you on here. There isn't such a thing. But imagine if there was. Wouldn't we really like to have that? We think. We think. When I was traveling in Asia many years ago, I had the opportunity to work at a, um, a street clinic in Calcutta offering free medical care to the very poor and um, destitute and sometimes desperate people living in the slums of Calcutta. 
And amongst them were quite a number of people with leprosy. And so I was working, I was not at all skilled in such things, I was kind of helping the people who had some training and skills and medical things. And treating the lepers, I was amazed and shocked to hear from one of the, um, the medical people about leprosy as a condition. Because I, and maybe you, associate leprosy with this horrible disfiguring disease in which parts of your body fall off. And limb, you know, fingers or lips, and that's the classic sort of leprosy thing. And what I found out is that actually leprosy doesn't do that to your body. Leprosy kills the nerves, so you can't feel pain. And poor people with no education, living in really dirty conditions, they cut themselves, they burn themselves, they hurt themselves. They don't feel that they've done it. It gets infected, it starts to swell, it begins to rot. They don't really notice until it's gone so far that the tissue dies. And the thing, this is shocking in one way, and also remarkably, I think, it has, has an effect for me to reflect on this. The thing that would make the greatest difference to the life, life of someone with leprosy is to be able to feel pain. To be able to know, whoa, I just hurt myself. I need to take care of this. And so what pain is doing, and even though we, I know we don't like I don't like it either. I'm, I'm not trying to sort of sell you pain. Um, but what it's saying is pay attention here. And it does it really well. It says, pay attention here. And we mostly say, no, I don't want to pay attention, it hurts. But actually we need to pay attention here to see, is something needed? Do I need to do something here? Again, this also translates to the realm of emotional pain. It says, okay, I need to look and see, is something needed here? Do I need to take care in some way? Do I need to offer some reassurance or seek some support or give some space? It doesn't mean we have to jump into it or onto the experience. But to see our attention and the way we pay attention has a profound effect on the experience itself. Khalil Gibran, in The Prophet, he said, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Just as the heart Sorry, just as the stone of a fruit must break so that its heart may stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. And to, to kind of to have or to, to, to listen to, to reflect on what that suggests, that oh, rather than seeing this as something to be avoided at all costs, it's like, oh, this is part of a process. The tendency we have to unconsciously harden, tighten, contract that leaves us in a condition of disconnection and disconnectedness from others, from our world, from life, and most painfully, from actually ourselves and our own heart. The disconnect that arises out of a, a habitual process of tightening and contracting that isn't our fault. It's not like, oh, I shouldn't be someone who has aversion and contraction and resistance. That's really bad. I shouldn't do it. It's unspiritual. It comes out of a system that's been going like this for a long, long time. And you know... We can look back to where it came from, and in the end, it's these little cells floating around in the soup of whatever it was that life began as, encountering some pleasant sort of soup and going, mm, softening and opening to, to absorb it, or encountering something that's maybe poisonous or unpleasant or dangerous to it, and tightening, contracting, I don't want to absorb that. And then we have this whole human body full of cells that kind of do that in the same way, contract, but can be supported and encouraged to again open, to open, to open. The loss of connection is the deepest suffering. The isolation and the separateness that that constructs, that is not fundamentally true, but that becomes constructed through an unconscious and habitually repeated and reinforced mechanism. That, when we start to see it, make it conscious, we're no longer obliged to keep repeating and reinforcing it. And naturally and slowly then, that hardness, that distance, that disconnection starts to soften, begins to open. And slowly something else becomes possible. It's like the defensive structures we've unconsciously created 
that ultimately built for our, or established for our protection, have become our prison, have become the basis of a sense of limitation and a sense of enclosedness or disconnection. That actually allowing ourselves to feel, to be touched by what's here, starts to inevitably, you don't even have to want this or be trying to do this. It's not something we try to do. But that naturally the very the moisture of attention, of awareness itself, starts to soften and to lubricate those places which are dry, which have lost, which have become arid without life through not being inhabited. The inhabiting of the experience brings them alive. To learn to befriend that which we find difficult, our bodies, ourselves, our experience, to open to this offers something profound and transformative. And I'd like to read you a story. This is a story that was told um, by one of my teachers on the occasion when I had first met him in India um, 25 years ago, Ajahn Sachito. He's an English Buddhist monk who was the abbot of one of the monasteries in England for many years. He's uh, now a traveling monk. But he, he wrote this, he, he gave this account of the story uh, of, of his own meditative experience, and I'd just like to read it. He said, Many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit, pain, I would think, be with the pain. That will do it. Here am I, being with the pain, being with the pain. It's not working, you know. Maybe I need to do some yoga. That will help. That's got it. Oh, good. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Cushion. One cushion, two cushion, three. Angle to the left, cushions to the right. It's not working. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath. For five years, I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts. And I don't like it. A very obvious truth. Yet I hadn't actually come to that, accepted what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead, I had acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like pain. Pain is good for you. Pain is bad. Make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into I do not like. So one day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours, not moving, and I'm going to get over this thing. So sitting, pain, wriggle, pain. Why did I say that? Why five hours? I mean, after all, middle way, moderation and all that, you know. Hours go by, two hours, three hours, three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain, my mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it, and came back to, oh God, and he was a Buddhist, oh God, this pain. And finally the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess, eventually. Ignorance does get tired after a while and has to take a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually begin to open to it. Without the, let's open to it and make it go away, or let's open to it and that will kind of take me into some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right. And then I began to see the sensation throbbing away. It began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, 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 voice going on, feeling of resistance. And with that, this whole bitterness towards the body, bitterness towards pain. Oh, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. This kind of moaning mind. And as I contemplated my relationship to the sensation, it became clear to me there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way and that way, and I felt like this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved. 
that had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, like a mangy, hungry wolf looking at me saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt the sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. And in my mind's eye, something in me reached out towards this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog. I always think of Scooby-Doo. But this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. Me and this pain. Me and the dog. Me and the pain. And then the whole thing just exploded very gently. And the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you. Finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing that the problem was I do not like. I will not accept. I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. The business is finished. So I transcribed that story from the talk because it touched me so much. And just something about that, that willingness to turn towards that which we find difficult. And yet, from the story, we also have to be a little careful because we might think, oh, oh, that's how you do it. That's how you make it go away. Be nice to it. But no, actually what happens, what transforms the situation is when we're willing to meet it as it is. When we're not doing this to make it go away or to get rid of it. Ramdas once said, he said, you can't be with the experience in order for it to go away. Because it knows. Because <laughs> it knows. It's not something else. It's not someone else. It's here. It's in the same field. And to be with something to make it go away is just a more subtle form of aversion. To be with it in order to see, what does it have to offer? What do I need to learn here? That's something noble. That's something courageous. That's something beautiful. And that's something that's possible for us. And so we can begin to perhaps also forgive this body for the fact that sometimes it's not easy for us to inhabit. To forgive this life for the fact that sometimes it's not easy for us. To allow it to soften, to relax, to see that this body, we relate to it just as we relate to life. All that pressure we put on our bodies sometimes, we put the same pressure on our lives. To see this body, it's alive, it's present, but you know, it's not really ours. Any more than this life is something we own. It's something that we have the privilege and the blessing of inhabiting this body, this life. It's incredible that we have this. It's not perfect by any means, but the fact that we have it at all is incredible, is amazing. And we can maybe just start to think, oh, my gosh, you know, this is an offering I'm receiving. It's not something that somehow I need to fix or control. We might see that, oh, it's not really ours. You know, in no sense of the word is the body really ours. Oh, actually, maybe in one or two. Yes, in some ways it is, but at a fundamental level. It's not. You know, even the fact that, you know, we think we're the inhabitant of the body. That's the basic reason for saying it's mine, isn't it? I'm, I'm inhabit. It's me in here. Anyone ever have that thought? Yeah? It's me in here. But, you know, we're not the only one in here. Actually, in fact, if it was a democracy, there's thousands and thousands of other beings in this body. In fact, I, I read somewhere that there's 10 bacteria in your body for every single cell of human tissue. So even at a cellular level, we'd be seriously outvoted if it came to, came to an election. You know, we would not be left in charge. And that kind of accords with how it is, because when we look at it, we see, oh, yeah, we're not in charge. We're not in charge of this. And it's a little bit embarrassing and possibly a bit annoying that that's the case. But there's something kind of relieving and kind of sweet about it. I remember the point in my life after many years of battling against what's essentially you know, mushrooms growing between my toes. 
athlete's foot. It's not quite mushrooms, but same family, you know, fungus. And that sense of, but they can't keep doing that. Surely I've got to find some way to get rid of them to realise, actually, no, they're going to be here for the rest of my life probably. We can sort of contain, or, or there's a certain sort of limited amount of territory that it seems they're just going to inhabit that. And it's kind of a very interesting process. Oh, okay, so it's their body too. It really is. They live off it just like I do. They'll actually probably still be here when I'm gone. You know? It's like, oh, okay. What is it to feel our body? And not just our body, our life in that sense. Oh, it's not just for me. It's for something more than that. It's for something larger than that, this body, this life. And then it's okay that we get to use it and that it's not forever. It's okay. We don't have to hold it so tightly. We might naturally have a sense of wanting to share this life, to inhabit it more fully and to share it, to live it. For our well-being, but likewise and equally for the welfare of others and all of life. To see it does it by itself, breathing, digesting, keeping warm, moving the things around through circulation. So much of what goes on, it just does it by itself. And there's something about that. Life lives by itself. We're here, inhabiting it. But there's something about it fundamentally. We can learn to see and to trust. We don't have to do it. We can relax. We can allow this life to speak to us, to reveal itself, to teach us, to transform us. We are not making that happen. But we make ourselves available for it to happen by being present, by again and again opening into relaxing around, making space for and finding the courage and the willingness to meet our life. Just one moment at a time. That's what we're practicing here. That's what we're learning here. Now the Buddha once said that within this fathom long body, this six foot long body, this uh, 180 centimeters long body, Within this fathom-long body, all of the Dharma is revealed. And so, this body, this shared experience of being embodied, consciousness embodied, life embodied, sensitivity and vulnerability, it connects us all. We share it with every living thing, this condition, to inhabit this with kindness, with courage, with nobility, is to allow this body, heart and mind to become a doorway, an open field in which we can know the fullness and the depth, the vastness and the deep, deep peace of life. So may we all, in our practice here and in our lives, may we deepen in our capacity to live within this body with consciousness, with courage, with sensitivity and wisdom. May we come to, to know the wisdom of this body in its sensitivity, in its profound connection with life. for our own welfare, 
and for the welfare of all beings. So thank you for your Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.